Well, welcome to episode 120 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington. With me, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. We're galloping to the line, Peter. Galloping? Is that the terminology? <laughs> well, we're galloping on a one-legged horse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, how do, how do you think the politicians must feel? The leaders, the MPs, the candidates, the staffers, their media people? Yikes, you know, I mean, we're in the cheap seats relative to them, aren't we? Absolutely. But it still feels like it's been this arduous long campaign. And yet, Hugh, we've only just on the Sunday had the campaign launch from the Liberal Party. It sort of is the theatre of the absurd. And this is a criticism of both sides, even though Labor did theirs early this time, three weeks out. Uh, you know, this is a, a bipartisan critique. They, they often have them in the last week or two of the campaign. They're designed now to give them a bit of a, a lift. You know, the idea of you having a campaign launch with one week to go in a six-week campaign is silly, but it's designed to give them a lift. And once upon a time, as you well know, it was designed to be late because the point at which public funding cut out was when you had your official campaign launch. So in other words, ministers, staffers, and all the rest of it could get their travel entitlement. They could fly around the country all on the taxpayer's purse. But the moment you had your campaign launch, that was it. It was over. You had to start paying as a party. That's changed, though. That has changed. I, I might be wrong on the exact moment it changed, but I think 2016 was when they changed it, which not uncoincidentally, I suspect, was because that was an eight-week campaign and they wanted to give them more flexibility about when they could or couldn't have that campaign launch because both parties used to, of course, always clamour to have it as late as possible to save the money. Now you just get your taxpayer assistance right up until the election day itself is my understanding. Okay, so if the idea is to get a lift, has the government got a lift? Well, I think they've given themselves the best chance of a lift. That would be the way that I would put it. I don't necessarily agree with, with everything that they did in their launch, including no doubt what we'll talk about, the signature policy around super and housing for first home buyers. But I think it's been well calibrated to give them the best chance of coming back. Whether that's enough, of course, and whether it's too little and therefore also too late is a whole other debate because they're a long way down in the polls, Hugh. But Having said that, their aim was to differentiate themselves from the, from the opposition. Anthony Albanese's gone small target. He's also done a little bit of Me Tooism here and there where it suits him to do so, where he wants to remove accentuated differences and, and be similar. This policy, I think, on the first principle is something that a lot of first home buyers will quite like the look of, just the idea that you can access your super. I think the design of it, in between faults, it's a powerful element politically in the design of it that if you sell your home, the capital gain from the portion that you took out of your super as well as the portion itself goes back into your super because that helps to mitigate against this argument that it will erode super. And that's, of course, always been Labor's most powerful argument. Don't jump into super to buy a first home because it erodes your retirement savings. That helps to, to if you like, at least politically argue against that. Uh, look, there are other design faults with it where the quantum that they're allowing you to take is actually quite minuscule in the context of the size of of a deposit and the cost of a house in most parts of Australia. So therefore, it's not necessarily worth it. But Hugh, the big thing that allows it to not be a Me Too moment and Labor will not follow this and therefore you accentuate the differences and give the Liberals something to campaign on, whether that's a success or not. The big thing is they're never going to chase this because they've been arguing against accessing super, whatever the terms of doing so for a very long time. Paul Keating was out very fast arguing against this. I don't think Liberal strategists mind having Paul Keating enter the fray in the last week of the campaign. He is popular with the Labor base, but not necessarily in the mainstream after his 96 defeat, so they won't mind that one either. Now, the caveat, of course, and it's your turn, is that there are, of course, a host of coalition people who have talked against 
schemes such as this. And we're seeing those quotes and tweets and comments starting to roll out to show that this might be something that Tim Wilson likes or Andrew Bragg likes, because they've been talking about this, but it's not necessarily something that most liberals like. And then we can argue whether they're allowed to change their mind, including on the design features, which answer a little bit of, of the criticisms on the way through. What do you think? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of problems with it. Mm. One is that business of actually when you sell your place, you've got to pay that money back. It actually means that you can, you could be then, if you're giving back, you know, like a, a significant chunk of your stake in the house. You're downsizing. <laughs> then effectively, how do you go to the next house, which mm. comes about the time you have family and kids and a partner might drop out of the workplace, all those sorts of things. But that's not where voters' mind is right at the moment. Jane Hume, the superannuation minister, has already said that, yes, uh, it probably will lead to a bump up in, in house prices, which goes to that argument about that's anything, another problem. You, anything yep. you feed in here, just you just add it to the capital cost of the house. But actually see that this is probably in net terms a positive for the coalition. Politically, you mean? Yes, because yep. it, it, it is absolutely true that... Uh, for younger voters, the sense that what their parents have, and that is the security of owning their own houses generally in Australia, is disappearing away from them, like, you know, like a galaxy just sort of moving off into the dark reaches of space because they can't catch up with what's going on. Now, the Labour proposition is the government will go in as an equity partner in your house and the coalition policy says you will go in as an equity partner of your house because you're going to use your super. Plays to ideology a little bit, doesn't it? Yes. And if you put those two things again, you'd say there's your choice, your money or the government money, which has got its own complexity. Albanese didn't have a good answer to uh, Scott Morrison in one of the debates where Morrison says, if your wages go up past a threshold, you have to pay money back to the government. And Albanese couldn't answer that in the debate. I don't think people are paying that much close attention. But, you know, I, I just think it probably will win them in net terms a few votes. And, uh, you know, in a very tight election, a few votes in some seats might make a difference. Yeah, and, and that's one of the interesting things about this, isn't it? Because they're trying to hold on and sandbag key seats against a national trend. Because unless all the polling is wrong, and it would have to be way wrong, not just a little bit wrong, like last time when the polls showed things were narrowing and the lead of Bill Shorten was never as great as the lead of Anthony Albanese's is now. So they would have to be both wrong and narrowing. And at the moment, there's no narrowing happening and they're a long way out in front. You know, eight points is sort of the smallest margin, frankly. Now, against that, what Andrew Hurst as the federal director and Scott Morrison as the prime minister is trying to do is sandbag individual seats. They're trying to essentially stop Labor, despite this national move uh, in the vote, turning it into seats that they win. And that's a really tough thing to do. Incumbents can do it better than oppositions generally. I mean, 98 is the standout example, but it, it, it's not analogous to, to this election. In 98, John Howard managed to win the election with 48.9% of the two-party vote, but he won by 12 seats. In fact, his number of seats in the end had an eight in front of it. So, you know, in today's terms, that's relatively comfortable. And it was a smaller parliament back then than it is today as well. I think it was 148 seats then. Now it's 151. So he did incredibly well sandbagging seats. But the reason it's not analogous is because he went into that election with a huge number of seats from the 96 victory, which was, I think, a 45 or a 46 seat majority. He lost most of them and held on to a 12-seat majority with an eight in front of the number. But Labor fell short despite having 51.1% of the vote because it had to target so, so, so many seats, whereas John Howard's team at that election, they basically just gave up 
a whole host, dozens of seats. They just said, we don't need to worry about them. They're gone. And then they sandbagged the ones with a lot of extra money and time and effort that they ended up holding on to despite the national swing. This time, Labor knows what it's got to win. Liberals know what it, they've got to sandbag. And that evens it up, I would suggest, in a way that wasn't the case in 98. Yeah, I'll indulge a little nostalgia back in 98. Uh, Howard was at least trying major tax reform, the last major tax reform, which was the GST. That's true. Now, the other thing that's being offered other than this uh, super for housing plan, of course, is Scott Morrison himself. Scott Morrison 2.0. He's changing. Well, this is remarkable. I've never seen it where a, an incumbent prime minister says, vote for me and I'll be different than I have been. <laughs> now, it, it obviously, as many people have said, shows a level of desperation. But it also shows um, a sense of um, recognition that he is part of the problem and that he's trying to say that he could be <laughs> less of a problem because it'd be a different him. What do you make of that? Yeah, where, where do you even start on this? Uh, I mean, the first point, the only point of comparison I can think of is the real Julia, but it is not analogous either, is it? Because it was so early in her prime ministership and it was about her having very early on gotten a little bit on message and then saying, you know what, I'm actually going to just be myself. This is years into a prime ministership. But it also, it didn't, let's just remember, it didn't work for Julia. No, it didn't. Oh, no. Because I, I was on the campaign trail with her on the day of the real Julia. You're going to see more of the real Julia. At the very first news conference, everyone says, well, what have we been seeing up till now? Who have you been? Exactly. Yeah. It's in, it sends an unbelievable message, doesn't it? And so, so it's not analogous, you know, even though it didn't work and it was a real negative for her. I think this is worse, I guess, is my point, because that at least came early on. And for a new prime minister, sort of recognising that she needed to not be captured by the spin, and it still failed miserably, as you point out, Hugh. And then, of course, the election was essentially a failure because it was minority government. You know, they lost their majority, even though they held on. This time, it's a prime minister who's been in the job for years and the longest serving prime minister since John Howard, the only prime minister to serve, to serve a full term since John Howard served a full term from 04 to 07 in defeat. So there's that. The other factor is he has built a campaign around accusing Anthony Albanese of not being the real elbow, of you know pretending to be a centrist when he's actually a rampant lefty. Yeah, look, look, at, look at those social media ads that they put. <laughs> Seriously, the social media ads that they put, which have a pile of glasses, of spectacles, hmm. on the side, as if this is code. Albo has changed his spectacles, so you can't trust Albo. Hmm. Here's a prime minister saying, "I'll change everything. I'll change. I'll be. You want me to tap dance? I'll spin a ball on my nose. I'll do whatever it is that you require me to do. Just elect me, please." And the prime minister has changed his spectacles too. Yes. I mean, so in the ultimate of hypocrisies, he's also changed his glasses. He's got two separate pairs now, and he alternates between them. But anyway, despite all of that. He says he's going to change now. So he has completely pivoted. And I want to analyze that in a moment. But firstly, he's only agreeing to change on small things, more empathy and sort of stylistic things. He's not changing on the big stuff. No National Integrity Commission. He won't budge on a whole host of actual policy positions, but it's an optics change. And it's tempting. And this is what I find interesting. I'm interested to get your view on this. It's very tempting with this change just to see it as utter, utter, utter desperation because they're in trouble and he knows that he's being told out of the focus group research, well, they just don't like you. Okay, well, what do we do about that? Well, I don't know, Prime Minister. Change. Do something. Change. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a marketing man's trick. Yep. It's where you say, look, sales of Vegemite are going down because no one wants Vegemite anymore. They're all buying jam. Yeah. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll change the jar 
but it'll still be Vegemite. Exactly. Well put. Very well put. And and that's what this is, right? Now, it's very tempting because of that to see it as utter desperation and to almost put up the white flag and say they're, they're cooked, they're done, it's over, game over. Now, I suspect that there's a little bit of that, but what we need to remember is I think it is absolutely a sign that they're desperate. I think it is absolutely a sign that they are behind. They would not be doing this if they were in front. No need to. But it's not necessarily ipso facto, they're cooked, they're done, it's done and dusted. They are doing this because they think it could work. They are doing this as a pivot because, yes, they're down and the odds are stacked against them, but they believe it might get them where they need to get. So, Do you believe it? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it will get them there. I mean, I, I do still think they're like more likely to fall short than over the line. We're all burnt from 2019 as far as predictions go, particularly here on this podcast. Very first episode where I so infamously said that there's no way Scott Morrison can win this election, and I'm happy to have it replayed ad nauseum if he does, which the Prime Minister has gleefully done at uh, midwinter ball events when he gets the opportunity. So you know, we're all burnt by that. I think it's less likely to work than work, but it is a play which is designed to achieve an outcome. I just don't know if they'll get there. So it's desperate, sure, they're down. It proves to us that they are down and that they're making a pivot, but it's a pivot that you just don't know, right? Coupled with the campaign launch and a week more of campaigning, you just don't know. Yeah. So it plays, I think, to a very real phenomenon here, and that is people who are really are stuck with a dilemma. They don't love Albo. Mm. That you know, they what they've seen of him. They, you know, he's they don't feel that he's a giant. They may not hate him. They don't like Scott Morrison. They've seen plenty of Scott Morrison, and they've got all kinds of reasons not to like him. But in the end, it comes down to effectively a binary choice. And the I will change might just be enough. Something on super for housing might just be enough to start to get a few people there with their pencil above the paper going, oh, well, you know, he might be better next time. I'll have a go. And, and you know, if, if I can get into a house, that'll work. Yep. And that's all he's got to do. If the sandbagging is already, if we assume it's already moderately successful, and if we assume that there is a bit of a vote there for those local candidates, and if we assume that the Liberal Party are are better micro-campaigners than Labor, which they have been for a long time, you don't need too much more here and there to, to hold on in the key seats. Now, look, at the end of the day, they've got no room, right? They lose one seat and then that's the majority potentially gone. So. I tend to think that holding majority government is beyond the Morrison government now, uh, particularly with the signs that you can sort of read, the tea leaves that you can read on the way through. But they might be able to lose a few seats to Teals, sandbag seats, jag one or two back from Labor, lose that majority, but convince new independents that are just in the parliament in safe seats to stick with this government rather than vote the other way. And Bob Catter, they would like to think, leans their way, even though Labor think they could get him. But boy, I tell you what, it is, this is the narrowest pathway to victory that I think I can remember for a, a government that we aren't completely writing off just yet with less than a week to go. week of this election campaign. And Peter, let's look at what happens in this last week. What do the leaders do and what does what the leaders are doing tell us 
about how they perceive the race. Well, this is the first time that we're really going to be able to get a sense. So when we next talk, Hugh, uh, with just a couple of days to go, uh, we'll have a picture from the first few days of this week. Where they visit now really does tell us where their polling and research internally has them focused. Because, you know, for weeks and weeks, you know, it's a bit of a charade, uh, a bit of a bluff, and a, a bit of a sort of mind mess with the other side. A little bit of a, a nod to candidates who like to think they're a chance when maybe they aren't uh, as you traverse the country. You know, you, you visit seats of the other side, you visit seats that if you're in opposition and you're trying to win a perhaps a bridge too far, but you want to, you know, give a rev up to your team. In the last week, you've got to be much more clinical than that. Time is no longer on your side. Prime ministers and opposition leaders don't waste their time in the last week. They visit the seats they are trying to win that are on a knife's edge. They don't visit the seats that they're home in, and they don't visit the seats that they can't win. But can Morrison visit the seats that he really wants to win? Ah, good point. Are there seats where, in fact, Morrison's presence, because of his lack of popularity, has a negative effect? And, and might they, in fact, be marking out seats that they desperately need to win, but using other tactics to try to get it across the line because Morrison won't bring them new votes there? Well, yes, that, that's very true. So he, he will visit... See, generally speaking, campaign strategists tell you that you can get a half-point bump by a prime ministerial visit or an opposition leader visit in a seat, that they can see that in their track polling. That certainly was the case at the last election, and it was right at the death of the election um, that Scott Morrison was running all around the country visiting seats. And actually, it was the, the passing of Bob Hawke, which saw Bill Shorten sit idle and reflect, and I don't mean that negatively, but reflect on Bob Hawke, a mentor and a, you know, a, a Labor great drinking hawk lagers, talking about you know the once great Prime Minister of Australia for Labor. Now, that could have cost him, uh, as it turns out. I think a lot of us looked at that and thought, oh, you know, that's going to play well, potentially, because there'll be a, a moment of, you know, the changes are coming. Bob Hawke, you know, Bob Hawke has died and reminded us of, of the greatness of Labor governments with some of the social reforms they do. In fact, if anything, it, it was an idle moment, which probably hurt Shorten, coupled with a comparison point to Hawke that probably hurt him as well because you know, he was no hawk in the eyes of some voters. But I'm straying a little bit here. Scott Morrison can't visit teal seats, but he's popular in outer metropolitan seats. They will target him at seats that they think they can win that are on the cusp, but obviously where he's seen as, as, as an advantage, not a lead weight. And that does drive him to those outer metro seats. So for example, he's not going, he's never going to visit the ones that are the teal independent seats, North Sydney, Wentworth, Goldstein, Kuyong, he's not going to be anywhere near those seats. But he's in Brisbane at the start of this week. Visiting the seat of Brisbane is interesting because I would have thought he's a bit of a drag in Brisbane. Whereas you go to somewhere like Longman or you go to a seat like Griffith, Kevin Rudd's old seat that they're trying to win back where the, the candidate there, a woman, they got her, uh, Olivia Roberts, I think her name is, they got her to be the opening speaker at the campaign launch on Sunday. So those sort of seats he can maybe have a positive effect in, but he's not going to waste his time, Hugh, in seats that he can't win anymore, either because they're just lost, like a seat like Reid, for example. I'd be amazed if he bothered to visit Reid in Sydney. I'd be amazed if he bothered to visit Swan in WA, other than if you fly all the way across the Nullarbor, I guess, you're there. So you visit Pierce, you visit Haslack, maybe you, you pop in at Swan because it looks bad if you don't. But making a deliberate trip to somewhere like Reid in particular as a seat that both sides seem to assume is lost for the coalition and, and a pick up for Labor, 
He's not going to do that. And he's also not going to go out to seats that are gone. So, for example, you know, they're, they're trying to get Gilmore. They're trying to get Parramatta. They're trying to get Lingari in the Northern Territory. If any of them are gone and they know that on their internal polling, he ain't going to bother going there. So he made a lot of effort to go to Gilmore. I think four visits in the in the opening weeks. This is the one with Andrew um, Constance, the former New South Wales Liberal Minister, who also tried and failed at Eden Monero, of course. So he, he has been unsuccessful at the federal level, but he's nevertheless popular and he has a high profile down that area. I didn't actually realise that he tried in Eden Monero. Was that before his state career, was it? No, no, no. Didn't he, didn't he try when they had the by-election after my, uh, Mike Kelly quit? I think he, I think he thought about it, and then he pulled out. Didn't he, he thought about it. Yeah, because he wasn't guaranteed the pre-selection. I think in the end, actually. Yes, you're quite right. You're quite right. My apologies to Andrew Constance. Nevertheless, if they give, well, you were right. He tried. <laughs> if they're giving up on that one, though, that is the kind of seat that Morrison should work at, and that it is regional. It's out. Of, it's out of the inner city. It's not a teal seat. Mm. So um, that itself would be significant. I think he'll visit there, Hugh. You think he might do? Well, yeah, I think he will because. I mean, I had internal polling that shows that they're down in Gilmore, but of all the seats that they were behind in, that was the one they were closest in. So the polling that I had had them gone in Reed, close to gone in Robertson, although I was, that was something that uh, other liberal strategists told me they disputed. Gone in Benelong, but again, they're hopeful that because it's their seat that they can turn it around. Gilmore was the one of that grouping that was regarded as the closest on the numbers. So you would think that he will continue to go back to Gilmore and you would think that he would be hoping that Constance as a personal vote would be of value there. Now, if he doesn't go to Gilmore, though, you're right, Hugh, that, that would be incredibly telling. Well, well they, if they can't pick up a seat, they, they must surely lose seats somewhere. I mean, it'd be absurd to think that. Yeah, but, that but that could happen. Hugh, Hugh, this week, and this is what will be fascinating to me, the veneer of the possibility of victory will continue in the rhetoric, but will change with a lot of the location spotting of a prime minister. So if they're gone and if, if we're all, if the national polls are about to be reflected and Labor's going to have an eight in front of its number, he can't afford to waste time in seats that they're no chance in. So he will start visiting seats further up the pendulum that he's trying to save. And the only thing that could butt up against that, which has happened in the past, prime ministers don't like it or opposition leaders for that matter, when state federal directors and federal secretaries of parties tell them that you're, you're stuffed. Uh, so sometimes they go rogue and they do their own thing. The parties want to send them to the seats where they can help, assuming that they're not a drag on the vote, as you point out. But sometimes leaders will say, well, you know what? Bad luck. Kevin Rudd in 2013 uh, was apparently a bit like that. You know, he was butting heads with the national secretary of the party because he didn't want to start running around saving the furniture with seats that were, you know, 7 or 8% up the electoral pendulum because he was embarrassed. Kevin Wright making enemies with uh, people on his own side. I find that very hard to believe. <laughs> Never happens. Never happens. Look, I just want to project forward just for a second because Anthony Albanese, part of his pitch is this notion that he wants to change the way in which politics is perceived. So if he gets into office, he says it is an honourable calling and he wants to rebuild the trust between the political process and the, and the voter. All very noble and, and fine. One of the ways to do that, of course, is that he wants a, a genuine integrity commission with teeth. I look back to the previous parliament when politician after politician fell over because they'd run foul of sections of the constitution, usually because of citizenship issues, but also sometimes because they had some business interest which had put them in trouble with section 44 of the constitution. And so many politicians left, so many by-elections, Barnaby Joyce and so many other things were were driven by that. I just wonder if we got a real 
Integrity Commission with teeth that could look retrospectively and look at some of the things that have happened in recent years, whether whatever Albanese thinks he's going to do about restoring honour and, and dignity to the process of parliament. In fact, we could wind up with a situation where politician after politician starts to have to front up to this Integrity Commission and explain why they put $600 million into a whole bunch of... Could have the opposite effect. Yeah, and, and in fact, mm. just... You know, no one goes off to see a court case and winds up admiring the people who are sitting in the witness box, generally, unless they're absolutely the perfect victim of some crime. So uh, I just wonder whether the Integrity Commission, which everyone wants, I support, we need one at a, at a Commonwealth level, may not, at least in the next term, create a circumstance in which there is going to be a lot of bitterness a lot of names destroyed. Well, look, look in a sense, at, at New South Wales, and, and the same as you, I... I... I think we need a Federal Integrity Commission. I'm happy to debate and discuss the design features rather than just fait accompli, try to compare it to particular state ones, good or bad, in design. I don't share the Prime Minister's view that ICAC is a kangaroo court. I do have some reservations about the nature of how it operates, but that's far too detailed a conversation with the time we've got left. But look at New South Wales. What I mean by that is I'm not sure that ICAC has helped people have a higher regard for New South Wales politicians. I mean, it's it's cleaned the, the place up, undoubtedly, because it has, you know, opened the curtain, sh- shed light on what happens and, and rooted out corruption as well as just bad practice. But in doing so, and I guess this is your point, in doing so, it, it's probably contributed to more voter cynicism and negativity towards the political class than not. But I guess it just becomes a case of what's the lesser of evils, doesn't it? I mean, you'd rather increase voter cynicism and concern about the political class, but also increase knowledge of wrongdoing and try to root it out, rather than have it going on behind the scenes, have some perhaps better informed or, you know, people who are seen as, you know, not necessarily better informed, but are seen as more politically engaged, wondering what's happened, and the rest of us just blindly just accept that, oh, I'm sure the politicians are fine. Uh, You know, it's better to get rid of the wrongdoing and to improve practices, even if the, the possibility of being caught in the act of wrongdoing is enough to make politicians think twice about how they function. That can improve behaviour in and of itself. But you're right, you're right. If, if Albo goes down this path, if his aim is to try to restore people's confidence in politics, it's a very slow process and you have to take those steps backwards before you take steps forward if you're going to start by rooting it all out and therefore exposing wrongdoing. Yes, look, I mean, there is no one in New South Wales who's not grateful that the Obeds, Eddie Obeds, are gone from political life and their and their pernicious influence, Ian McDonald's and so on. Of course, and Nick Greiner, of course, uh, brought in the ICAC. First thing he did is he lost his education minister. So, it, you know, it can blow up on the people who bring it in in the name of integrity. So hmm. that's going to be one to watch and may make life difficult, particularly if it's very tight on the numbers. Because if you start losing some from your own side, for example, and then by-elections arise and things are tight, you know, the notion that everyone wants a bit of stability and, you know, be careful what you wish for. But, uh, you know, we'll see and hopefully it'll, it'll come to pass. Very good point. Now, we are going to have a chat again between now and get another podcast out between now and the uh, election on Saturday. And that'll be really the, the run to the line 
Absolutely, at that point. Probably on Thursday. Predictions time, Hugh. Predictions time, but also, yeah, I think these next couple of days, I think we'd all agree, are pretty important. People are starting to form up in their own mind how they're going to vote, although, as we know, many will make their decision in there on the day. Well, and the other factor, Hugh, is that a lot of people, and we've talked about this before, a lot more people are pre-polling and postal voting than have in the past, many millions more, actually. So we're going to be finding out on the night what the numbers are from then, but we're also going to have this lag effect of, a, of an increasing percentage of the voting population who have already cast their ballots, perhaps before Scott Morrison is able to engineer his attempt at a comeback. Fascinating. We'll talk on Thursday. Look forward to it. PBO, great as always. Cheers, mate. Talk to you then. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.